Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 27th of January 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, uh, bringing us eastern approaches from the Netherlands, a very troubled place at the moment. It is Mike. at the moment, and uh, some quite uh, unpleasant uh, video footage to show in a little bit of time. Uh, but we'll start off with uh, with the number, Brian, 100,000. Uh, this is the number that uh, is now being uh, the front page news of just about everyone, as we'll see in a moment. But yesterday, of course, Boris Johnson was giving another live stream. Uh, and uh, well, I'm sorry to do this to everybody, but I thought we should just listen to a few seconds of it. Good afternoon. I'm sorry to have to tell you that today, the number of deaths recorded from COVID in the UK has surpassed 100,000. And it's hard to compute the sorrow contained in that grim statistic. The years of life lost, the family gatherings not attended, and for so many relatives, the missed chance even to say goodbye. I offer my deepest condolences to everyone who's lost a loved one. Fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, and the many grandparents who've been taken. Yeah, well, as I say, I do apologize for doing that to everybody, but uh, I think the reaction in the chat box says it all uh, because uh, nobody is buying a word of what uh, Boris well, is saying. It's, it's really bad value, Mike, because he would have gone to a very expensive public school and you would have thought they did drama. And if they did drama, his theater would have been a lot better than that. Uh, but you did notice that the hair was unkempt. He was attempting to look, you know, as if well, he was in. What, what would happen? I'll put it my side, if I may. But yep. what would happen if we appeared looking like that for the UK column news? What, what would actually happen? What would our viewers say to us? And he's mocking. He's mocking the public by appearing unkempt, um, insincere. This is this is a psychological game. It is a psychological game. So, uh, Brian, we've got some headlines here from front well, pages. Uh, I had a conversation with a couple of people yesterday and they said that they were noticing that the, the mainstream press and the media, the BBC, were becoming more and more outrageous and shouty in the headlines. And I think this is because they know they're losing the battle over the statistics and the data because the data shows that the government is spinning a line is telling a lie over a pandemic. They can't win the battle of facts, so they have to get into the propaganda. So that headline there, um, Boris, I am so sorry. And then what an image carefully put together. So you've got the spikes of the deaths on the left where you're going to see that first of all. Then we come on to the emotive faces and um, it's very noticeable that they're not pushing in general faces of old people dying what you're now seeing the media doing is ramping up faces of middle-aged uh, people or younger people and then there's boris with his head bowed so this is uh, uh this is brought across into the bbc news that somehow him looking at his desk so he can't look the public in the in the eye is telling us that this man is very sincere everything i pick up with tells me that he's he's absolutely not sincere about what he's saying he doesn't understand the real grief that people are experiencing so let's follow through um 
We've got a number of headlines here. So the Daily Express, I'm deeply sorry for every life lost. Carefully uh, poised, uh, posed uh, photograph there with eyes closed. Daily Mail, very similar. I'm deeply sorry. I, I was Prime Minister. Does this mean he's going? That may be a bit of good news in that headline. I was Prime Minister. I take full responsibility. Um, here we go. The Daily Telegraph, head bowed. I'm deeply sorry for every life. There's no sort of plotting across the press to get the message out. Uh, this one is just appalling. Fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, and the many grandparents who have been taken, we will remember them. So, and of course, this is uh, reinforcing the sort of wartime rhetoric yeah, of, mem of, of memory and, and remembrance. Remembrance. It's mockery. It's mockery of people who would take part in a remembrance parade. Absolute mockery. These people know what they're doing. The Guardian, I'm deeply sorry, PM faces question. So because he's head bowed, apparently we're to take this as, as, as body language that he believes what he's saying. Actually, he's avoiding eye contact with the public. So this is theatre. Uh, the Times, 100,000 deaths, more photographs there, lots of youngish people. Um, so we're not showing that the people really being affected, the elderly. And it goes on financial times. But apparently this is all good for the uh, economy. So if you have a look at some of those articles, they're saying, well, there's been an amazing corporate improvement while this crisis has been going on. So clearly we need more uh, created pandemics to help the economy. Uh, here's I, I newspaper, 100,162. And there's the sea of faces. And if you look at the faces again, you'll see overwhelmingly younger people. Uh, the star, well, the star just went off on its own because this is uh, sheer nonsense. Oops, we seem to have created a monster. And this is because they suggested that Piers Morgan would make a better prime minister than Boris Johnson. And I think they got a bit of a backlash. Um, so this is pure fantasy and a bit more of a psychological attack. So um, none of the editor, editors or editorial teams of our main UK newspapers has anything different to say than obviously the propaganda piece put out by central government and Conservative Party HQ, Mike. I mean, nothing that we've said here, Brian, is, is in any way undermining or, or attempting to underestimate the, the loss to anybody that's lost people uh, in this uh, period. But look, here's the point. Uh, this is Dr. Mar Mark Van Ranst, the flu commissioner of Belgium. We showed the video clip uh, in, a, uh, I think, Friday's programme uh, where he was speaking in 2019 at the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but if you want, if you find the original video and listen to what he said, he said that if you want to uh, get people to comply with your public health policy, you've got to promote the deaths. The numbers are absolutely normal, of course, but promote them as if they're not. And this is this is the point. What have they done here? They have taken, they have said 100,000 people, uh, but this is the first time in history that from one winter respiratory season to the next winter respiratory season that we have maintained a running total over that period. Yeah. We didn't reset it to zero in September, October, November time when we normally do. Uh, if it was a flu pandemic, uh, we would say this winter season, we had this number of deaths from the flu. No, this time we're keeping the running total, keeping it going upwards. 
uh, because there's a political narrative behind this as well. A political lie to create fear in the nation, and that's creating psychological breakdown. We've got people very depressed. We've got mental health problems. And this callous man, Mr. Von Rantz, is suggesting that this is the model in order to, to get your propaganda lies across. And we know that the government's own behavioural insights team working through Spy B and SAGE have been working on this, ramping up fear in their meetings because that's what their own minutes say. So if you have a government that is attacking its own population, those people should be brought to trial, is my opinion. Yes. Now, you were talking about uh, the desperation in the mainstream media headlines. Chris in the chat box saying, I don't think this stuff is working anymore. Lots of people walking around, running and walking dogs, etc. That's absolutely true. Uh, people are getting on with their lives as much as it's possible to do, it seems to me. But look, let's have a look at the situation with uh, mortality, uh, the latest statistics from the ONS. Um, so because they're doing it, we'll do it. Uh, this is uh, the red line showing uh, all-cause mortality from uh, the beginning of 2020 up to date. Uh, and we see that uh, despite uh, all the uh, headlines and the uh, claims of pandemic, uh, we still don't have the excess mortality that we saw in April. Uh, if we remember, that was uh, week 13 is when the first lockdown came in. Uh, we were calling those mostly lockdown deaths. Uh, we stand by that uh, because, in fact, uh, that was as a result of two things. First of all, care homes not getting the medical uh, assistance that they needed, plus they were being given blanket do not resuscitate orders, uh, and also the fact that people were not getting the normal NHS treatment because everything was being reoriented towards uh, towards COVID. But if you look on the right-hand side to the uh, end of 2020 and the beginning of 2021, uh, we see there is some excess mortality, but still, Brian, the numbers are not large enough to make it uh, classify it as a pandemic, not in the way that we were being sold this pandemic. Well, look, here's uh, the BBC's coverage of this. Uh, UK COVID deaths, why the 100,000 toll is so bad. Um, well, the first graph that I want to show from this is care homes. And they're making the point that care homes uh, have, were hit much harder in the first wave than the second wave. Did you have something to comment on that? Uh, well, I find this particularly um, emotive, Mike, because I have a very elderly relative who's uh, suffered a very bad stroke several years ago, is now locked into a care facility. That is a very good care facility or has been to date. Um, but despite their very serious, I'm going to say, end of life condition, we're not able to get in to have any form of human contact. So ultimately, the deaths within the care system are now being accelerated. This is my view, accelerated by the government's callous denial of families to be able to interact with their own elderly relatives. So whatever the figures are, we can see that the, psycho the psychology, the brutal psychology is affecting death rates. Uh, well, that's true. Uh, but of course, you'll note that the first wave, which lasted, what, April, May, was the main peak of the first wave, two months, uh, 38,809 deaths, according to that graphic. The second wave has been running for at least two months now, but we've had significantly less mortality. Uh, as a result, 37,890. So um, is that a pandemic? I don't know. But anyway, let's look at where this excess mortality is. Once again, place of death, uh, excess mortality taking place in hospitals, not so much in care homes. 
But once again, uh, in this uh, week two, that should say, uh, in week two of 2021, we have significant excess mortality in people's uh, homes, uh, which means that they are not getting the care that they need in hospitals for whatever reason. Uh, let's go back to the BBC article. Again, they uh, pushed this idea that the death rate for January to November 2020 was the highest for 10 years. They've pushed this graph again. Okay, uh, they can, uh, they've at least shown the data from the beginning of, of 2000, so they've at least shown 20 years worth of data. Uh, they're saying it's the highest for 10 years, but the data is available, so they should probably have uh, run it back until 1971, as we showed a week or so ago, uh, and look at the uh, age standardized mortality. This is the number of deaths per 100,000 people in the UK. So this takes into account not only uh, population, but also uh, age distribution. Um, and you can see very significant uh, falls in uh, deaths per 100,000 uh, from 1971 until about 2008 when it flatlined after the economic crisis. Uh, but what you can absolutely see is that even though we're supposedly in the midst of this pandemic, we have significantly fewer deaths per 100,000 people than we had in the 1970s, 80s and 90s. Uh, and yet we didn't shut down economies. We didn't send children home from school. Uh, we didn't do any of that stuff at that time. And of course not, because this is a created situation at the moment, Michael, it, it is obvious. Okay, so let's go on. The number of people testing positive for COVID-19 in the UK falling like a stone. These were the graphs that uh, Chris Whitty was showing on the live stream yesterday, uh, falling like a stone. And I'm wondering why, uh, because apparently uh, the new variant and various other variants are sweeping through the country uh, and uh, we're, we're creating all kinds of, uh, of uh, uh, R numbers and so on, but, uh, but uh, testing is falling. Um, well, perhaps this gives a little bit of insight into that. This is the uh, total number of tests uh, actually taken. Now, of course, the scale on this is somewhat different, um, so it, it may be a little bit difficult to work out, but actually there is some correlation between the number of lab-based tests being done, PCR tests being done, and the number of positive results. Um, so that might be part of it. Uh, part of it uh, might also be the fact, of course, as we reported a few days ago, that the World Health Organization has pushed out more information about uh, the number of uh, uh, amplification cycles for PCR tests that are appropriate and maybe there's a little bit of reduction there as well. Um, but then the other graph that was being shown on the live stream yesterday was this the number of people in hospital uh, with COVID-19 and we can see that that's also falling. But the question again is, is it abnormal? Is the number of people in hospitals abnormal? And I made this point a week or so ago, I'll just run through these very quickly. But if we go back through the last 10 years or so of headlines from The Guardian, we see the same kind of stuff year after year, hospital bed occupancy rates hit record high risking care, uh, more patients overstretched doctors, is the NHS facing a winter crisis? Uh, hospitals scramble to prevent crisis in NHS's toughest ever winter. We have seen this year after year after year, but somehow this year has become something special. Um, and uh, that absolutely uh, at the behest of a narrative being pursued by the British government and amplified by the mainstream press. And I just, just want to add in there that uh, you are principally using statistics, Mike, from the ONS in order to demonstrate what's really going on. So the Office of National Statistics is doing its job. It is, it is processing data. It's how that data is then being taken by the government and sold to the public. Yes. And I'd encourage people to email the Office of National Statistics 
give them support, give them praise, because when you do talk to the human beings that operate that organization, they're usually very helpful. The damage is being done by the British government itself, which is taking their data and spinning it in order to push across a lie. So the more praise, the more encouragement, the more interaction the public has with the Office of National Statistics, the better we are going to, or the sooner we're going to get to the truth as to what's really going on here. But I think um, we've always had good contact with ONS. And if people think that it's the ONS who are doing this uh, uh, twisted political policy. It's not. This is coming from central government. This is coming from Boris Johnson and his cabinet. This is the, the start of the twisting of the data. I, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, where I think uh, people could also put pressure in the other direction would be on the NHS and Public Health England and the uh, MHRA, because the MHRA, of course, aren't publishing data yet uh, about uh, vaccine uh, adverse reactions. We need that data. But also uh, the NHS and Public Health England uh, need to start publishing like-for-like -like data on, for example, hospital occupancy between this year, last year and previous years, uh, and other uh, ICU occupancy between this year, last year and other previous years, and make that yeah. easily publicly available, because at the moment that data is very, very hard to obtain, and it's very, very hard to make, uh, to, to uh, get data which is showing sort of apples for apples. Um, it's, it's very difficult to get that data at the moment. They need to, more transparency and more uh, willingness to be clear on things. But let's uh, welcome Alex Thompson to the programme. Uh, and Alex, just, we're just going to talk about uh, uh, lockdown riots in, in the Netherlands in a minute. But before we do that, just what are your thoughts on what we've just covered? I'm still trying to recover from the shock of seeing our prime ministers in such a, a dishevelled state. And the first word that came to mind as I looked and more especially listened to the man was hangover. I can't get that thought out of my mind. Uh, listening to the way the consonants came out of him, slurring is a little too uh, ex uh, exaggerated to call it slurring. But there was a hollowness about the man, uh, his face, his diction that to me indicated that perhaps he's not entirely sober. Well, Alex, um, if we just put in an opinion in, uh, my opinion is that uh, Boris Johnson will be under immense pressure at the moment because he is not thinking, he's not creating policy, he's simply doing as he's being told. And if that's the case, the pressure is going to be put on by some form of dirty pressure. Uh, he's got a reputation as a man who likes a glass of champagne. So is he turning to drink? That would be a pretty normal human reaction but it's beginning to show. Um, okay, well, let's move on to the Netherlands, Alex, and we're going to start off with a little bit of video. Just tell us uh, quickly what's going on here. This is the most serious of many riots over the weekend, and that uh, you've just seen a very close-up water cannonade. Um, uh, this was in Eindhoven. Uh, people were responding here to the introduction of an unprecedented curfew for the first time since the Nazi occupation. Uh, the victim is here, as, as you can see, being uh, helped away by her boyfriend, who is uh, in a state of shock at what's, uh, what's happened. She was actually unconscious for a while. Now, that's perhaps the most shocking image uh, that's come out. Uh, Eindhoven was the worst of, of several uh, explosive inflammatory protests about the curfew 
that happened in not just the major cities, but also in quite small villages around the country, some of which have a name uh, as being easily inflammable and others are, are dead quiet at the best of times. Um, this curfew is unprecedented. We'll perhaps talk about many of these things more in extra time, the, the historical and the constitutional aspects. We can't give our deepest analysis on the main news. There isn't time and it's not fair on the people who pay to keep us going as subscribers. So watch in extra time for that. But uh, I will say that it is a, a spooky situation uh, even in this city I'm in where there haven't been riots yet uh, to find that everything shuts up at nine o'clock uh, and that you get a hundred euro fine minus a fiver uh, if you're out on the streets. Um, Alex, uh, anyway, uh, it's, it's nine o'clock yeah. in the Netherlands, but it's six o'clock in France. So, I mean, this is something which is, uh, seems to be spreading right across Europe at the moment. Within the, the civil law continental model, the Dutch are the last and the most reluctant to bring in such tyrannic, tyrannic measures. Uh, France and Belgium and to some extent Germany have been living with curfews for quite a while and they've been a lot more stringent. Uh, it's a, co a coalition cabinet as it usually is in The Hague uh, running the country at the moment and there were dis disagreements even between the governing parties as to whether it should be an 8, 8.30 or 9pm curfew. Uh, churches, for example, find it very difficult to hold evening services now. Uh, any association, let alone family and friends visits are now being curtailed and you have to show papers pleased uh, co countersigned by an employer uh, to, uh, to, uh, to declare to the police that you are out past nine o'clock for a legitimate purpose such as a pastoral visit or an urgent job for an employer. Well anyway let's see who this uh, lady was who was so bloodied and knocked out by a, a, a water cannon fired at her from an astonishingly short range. She is Denisa Stastna uh, as reported here in the local paper for the city in question, the Eindhoven Stachblatt. And uh, there on the left, if people can look at that phrase, if they can read Dutch or use an auto-translate, they can read the whole article. Uh, but I've taken from the right here that Denisa Stastna from the Czech Republic incurred a fractured skull and had 18 stitches, uh, stitches. Her boyfriend is a local called Michael and he states, we were filming from the roof of the bike shed. We got off it as soon as things got out of hand but the water cannon was already level with us. If people wish to rewind and have a look at the first five seconds of what you just played, Mike, that's what happened there. Uh, before I know it, knew it, Denisa was unconscious on the ground beside me. Now, this has led to quite a reaction, and I'm going to read out to people in a moment what happened here. Uh, the same newspaper, along with many other uh, local newspapers for different parts of the country, and some national ones, carried this indignant response by a lady who, I'm sorry to say, uh, is Mumsnet incarnate, uh, a lady who is called Susanna, uh, who had the indignity of being kept in uh, during the daytime, not just the 9pm curfew, because uh, the authorities had used new legislation to declare a state of emergency, keeping people indoors during the day during this riot in the uh, in the greensward outside the Van Gogh Museum in Eindhoven. And uh, this lady was in that part of the city. And so this is the uh, report, uh, sorry, the, the, uh, the response she wrote. I don't know you, you don't know me. And still, I'm wondering what you were up to in Eindhoven. Were you demonstrating? Was it your first time? Maybe you didn't want to get involved in the riots, but got dragged along. Maybe you weren't intending to use any violence and now think that you were uh, attacked too harshly. I'm not asking this because I feel so involved with you. I'm asking you so that I can make it clear that I don't care about the answers. You were there. You broke the law. We all saw it. Maybe you say that you didn't destroy anything, threw nothing and hit nobody. It doesn't matter. You were there. I watched you, together with many others, making my city unsafe. It's the city where I live and the square where I take my daily walk for my own good health. Today I was forced to stay indoors. 
not after the curfew, but the whole day, my neighbourhood became a safety uh, risk area, so an official declaration, through people like, thanks to people like you. Yes, there is such a thing as fundamental rights, Susanna continues, but if you go ahead and demonstrate in the face of uh, a prohibition, you'll also have uh, to uh, run in with the law, criminal law, she writes in Dutch, but that doesn't really work in English, uh, the law will catch you. Um, and despite the couple of streams of blood on your head, says Susanna, you probably still have no idea what it means to tangle with the law. At least I hope so for you. But by now you do know what good health care involves, because you were cared for by a nurse who managed to continue to view you as part of the human race. After all, that's what our nurses do, despite anything that we might, or despite any of our behaviour. But I would not be able to do that, Susanna ends. If it were up to me, you'd get nothing more than a single plaster and a kick in the ass. So that's why I don't work in healthcare. Woman, I hope you realise that you are not the victim here, and I hope I never come across you in Eindhoven. Your reaction, please, gentlemen. Well, we've just looked at each other with astonishment, Alex. Um, and I'm thinking I'd like to see a picture of the lady that wrote that. I think it would be good to see her so that we can identify somebody who regards a fellow man, fellow woman with such absolute hate. This is the Nazi ideology. Um, uh, there's no question of it. And of course, uh, it's an emotive thing to say, but it is a fact that many people forget um, that some 55,000 um, Dutch went off to fight with the Waffen SS during the Second World War. We hear all the stories about the Dutch resistance, but actually when we come down to factual um, information about what was happening in parts of uh, Holland during the war, there was of course that undertone siding uh, with the Nazi policy. And I hate to think that we're seeing a resurgence of that now because Holland truly is a lovely country. Yes, people can put their foot in it by generalising about the Dutch or exaggerating character differences between the Dutch and their neighbours, whether the British or continental neighbours. But there is, the best Dutch have always admitted this, uh, a strong strain in parts of the country, and maybe we'll go into that in extra time, um, of going along with tyranny and saying it serves the buggers right for anything they do. And just before we get onto the historical parallels that you're going to put on, I would also say that this lady, Susanna, I tried to get a, a surname, which the Dutch press usually pretend that they, they can't publish, but there's no law on this, but they, they have a policy of not doing so. I tried to get a mugshot, but I couldn't find the original messages, despite that they've been shared all around social media. But the local press have been able to catch up with this lady, who clearly is, shall I say, um, you know, indignant middle class type who thinks that the worst of the curfew is, sit, is having to sit at home and not doesn't worry about her money much. Uh, and Susanna has replied to the press, well, I have got such uh, nasty reactions that I'm not going to defend what I said in my uh, comment, but I do appreciate it that some people sent me good for you's uh, in response. Well, I thought the same thing as you, Brian, about this, and so let's look at the 1936, so 23rd of October 1936 edition of the uh, newspaper of the Dutch National Socialist Movement, or NSB, uh, the newspaper Folk and Vaderland, and uh, look at the headlines that they're proclaiming. Democracy is in peril. Europe is at tipping point. And there was quite a lot of this going on in the, in the 1930s. This was Anton Musset's paper, the, the Dutch chief collaborator with Nazism before and during the war. 
And uh, they had a particular emphasis, actually, on appealing to the Dutch Protestant churches, which have always been strong in the country, and telling them, you should get on board with the National Socialist Movement, and you should be uh, sending your sons to crack the skulls of the rebellious. After all, Romans 13 in the Bible says they obey the government, you know. We'll get into this again, perhaps, in extra time, but this is getting to a bit closer to the heart of the problem here, actually. And uh, what did the mayor of Eindhoven say? Uh, Dutch mayors actually are... Uh, appointed by royal decree and are not necessarily part of the local council, uh, elected as part of, as a local councillor, increasingly they are, but in the legal system they are simply parachuted in by the central government with no democracy in a way that only Belarus does uh, in, in other, uh, other parts of Europe. Now, John Joritzma, who comes from the north of the country actually, uh, who has no local roots as far as I know, says uh, in response that evening, and I will grant that he was shocked because there were also some lootings, at least of one shop, uh, and other inexcusable scenes. Absolutely, uh, I agree with that. But he said to the press that evening, you don't expect these surreal scenes in the Netherlands. The scum of the earth, and he said that some of them were stoned and anarchists, descended on our city. They have nothing to do with our city, he added. Then he got a bit more emotional and said, it, we're heading for civil war. And he, his uh, context made it clear he was blaming the protesters for the civil war, not the authorities. And then he said, soon we're going to have to send in the troops, and that's the worst thing you can have. Have we decayed so much in society that things will have to reach that pitch? Five seconds after that, uh, a gentleman holding one of those microphones said, has there been discussion between the central government and the mayors, who, by the way, com commandeer the police in emergency situations in the Dutch model, has there been discussion of sending in the troops? And he immediately got defensive and said, no, not as far as I'm aware. Don't put words in my mouth or I'll get very angry with you. He's, and, but he, five seconds earlier, he had said, we're going to have to send in the troops if things continue like this. Now, what's going on here? Uh, our own Martin Edwards has talked about this, and we often see Dutch city mayors at the forefront of this international trend. Martin Edwards, as part of his long-running series, One World Governance, wrote even about four years ago, I think, that the global parliament of mayors, uh, I think chaired by the then mayor of uh, The Hague, Mr. Artsen, um, was talking about really going beyond the electorate, a kind of international common purpose model. That's Amsterdam City Council Chamber, you can see there. Um, and in fact, the mayor of Rotterdam, Mr. Abu Talib, was not just in um, the Global Parliament of Mayors, he was a Bilderberg attendee in that very year, 2016. And he again has invoked his new emergency powers in Rotterdam to start cracking skulls in the evening. Then we get onto the police response. And uh, Mr. Simmers, uh, Kuhn Simmers, is the chief executive of the Dutch Police Federation, I have to say he's always performed well and sympathetically in interviews, and I think he's a good-hearted man myself. Um, but he says in response that I hope that the Eindhoven riot was a one-off, but I fear that it's a harbinger of days and weeks to come. There's a reason for the curfew, he adds. And here comes the heart of, I think, what's, what's being lost in policing. And, and British policing is supposed to be better than this. Uh, I'll, I'll forgive Mr. Simmers a bit more because of the Napoleonic system he's in. But he says, don't attack the police. We can't help it either that such rules are in place. It is, and he uses this Dutch phrase, niet normaal, meaning not on, to come at police with lethal weapons. So, uh, shall we say Mr. Simmers has a blind spot to the lethal lethality of a water cannon being fired at point-blank range, uh, actually? Um, well, over to you for a bit of comment before we go on with that. Well, well I, I just wanted to come back on that, Alex, and, and say, well, it isn't, it isn't just a water cannon, is it? The police, whether it's the police in Holland or in UK, are the people who are now building the police state. They are putting the blocks in place to imprison people in their homes, and that creates the angst and the pressure and the backlash. 
And I, I look at police, whether, whether it's here in Holland or in other countries, and I think to myself, can't they realise, can't they see that they are building the prison which is going to imprison their own children and their own grandchildren? Um, these police become stupid. Well, clearly some of them are. Some of them are very aggressive. Some of them have been psychologically reframed. But even the police who are still thinking at the moment don't seem to understand that when they go out and enforce laws which are uh, unconstitutional and dangerous to the population, they are actually building the police state itself. I mean, they're supposedly selected for at least some intellect and intelligence. I, I doubt it, actually, that whether they're being selected for that now. And uh... I will stress again, I've come to the conclusion repeatedly uh, in recent years that the Dutch police are not only some of the least bad in the continent of Europe, but they're actually also less corrupt uh, than the British police. But on the other hand, they're also, uh, this is it's possible for these two things to go together, that they're not only less corrupt, but they're also less lawful. Uh, because the model tells them uh, that they are employed as an arm of the state and they must do their job. So when the chips are down, even I would say some of the best policemen like Mr. Simmers cannot get beyond the moral argument of we're here to, to, to do our job and don't make us press the button. You know, as if suddenly they lose all sense of proportion and uh, say, well, everything else is a matter for the courts or the mayor who sent me here to do it. Uh, we used to have, even in the Netherlands and certainly in Britain, a higher conscientious standard of policing that you were there for the people and you wouldn't carry out unconstitutional orders in any kind of uniform. Whereas now, we see that uh, as undercover policemen, for example, are lifting people from shops for not being masked up and refusing to hear the argument with or without papers to prove it that they are, the people are exempt from wearing a mask for health reasons, the police who are then challenged on this say, well, look at the uh, website of the Dutch health ministry. And that health ministry text has now been changed. Here's the core of what we're losing if we, go, if we lose common law. In a civil law model in the Netherlands, the website text now reads, you might not want to show police or security guards or train conductors medical proof of your exemption. That's up to you. But if you'd rather not show it, bear in mind that you might be kicked out of the, the, the vehicle or room that you're in, uh, or that you might be fined. After all, everyone in uniform has to check that your exemption is true. You know, again, the same uh, attitude of I'd have a mental block going past anything, uh, getting into any terrain of, um, uh, of, of hearing a human argument. Right. I, I have no discretion in applying the law. I must press the button. I must issue the fine. Uh, and of course, this is taking over Britain, too. It's not just a question of common law. It's a question of police training internationally. Now, it wasn't just Eindhoven either in the Museum Plain uh, outside the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. There was quite a lot of uh, trouble as well. And here we see, for example, and if you look at the top of this page, you will see the YouTube channel I recommend people subscribe to. It's in Dutch, but go look at the most recent videos on Onrecht TV channel and you will see stuff from all over the country, which even if you don't speak Dutch is worth watching and listening to uh, as well, because the sound indicates quite a lot of what's going on. But here we see a gentleman floored by a police dog and the, the, the bite that he got uh, was right down to the bone. And in fact, the footage uh, being spoken during that right-hand shot is that is a should we say a, a, a volunteer first aider from the crowd selling this man uh, if you don't go to hospital now you'll lose your leg uh, so again it's a step beyond what we would see in Britain I think historically but I have to stress again it is the most lawful the least lawless of the continental policing models this was the last country in this part of Europe that went to curfews 
And uh, Mike, I think you have a bit more footage. Here we're going to zoom in on one of the police tactics. Now, this was the most serious writing since 1980 when Queen Beatrix was crowned. And at that time, or in response to the anarchist uh, riots then, uh, they brought in undercover policemen known as the Romeos from the radio call sign alphabet. And the Romeos or the R units are the ones that go in in civvies and frankly, provoke riots, as you just saw, if the crowd are too law-abiding to, to justify the use of the water cannon and the truncheons, the Romeos will then go in and do that uh, for them, as it were. There, there, there's much more footage you could look at, but if you are looking online on social media or YouTube for Dutch footage, uh, that's what Romeos refers to. It's agent provocateur, who in many clips charge ahead of the real demonstrators, somehow slip between the riot police and then slink away behind the vans without being challenged. Um, Alex, you, you've used the term curfew. Is, is that actually the term being used in Holland? If so, they've at least been honest enough to describe the fact that curfews are in place, whereas in UK we still have this utter joke that we're in lockdown. No, it's a curfew. But is that term being used in Holland? Yes, the Dutch for it is avondklok, which literally means the evening bell, ding ding everybody at home. Of course, they don't sound a bell on the streets, but uh, it is the historic word that means curfew. And it puts me in mind of being shown around the city when I was uh, first came to live here ten, 10 years ago. My old landlord, who's passed on since and never lived to see this decay, uh, he drove me around all the places where as a 14 year old he'd hidden from the razias, the, the raids to to um, uh, seize men and teenage boys off the streets and send them to be worked to death in German factories during the war. He pointed out the cellars that he'd hidden in all within walking distance of here. And at the time he was telling me, can you imagine, Thompson, things were so uh, awful then that we had a curfew. We were forced to stay in our homes in the evening. Can you imagine it? You know, he, to his mind, this would never come back. Well, of course, the old, old boy mercifully never lived to see uh, his worst fears come true again. But yes, it is called a curfew. Yeah, thank you. Um, okay, now if you uh, if you like what the UK Column's doing and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and uh, join us there. The options to join us and that would be very, very much appreciated and much needed. And uh, also share the things we push out on various social media. So on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, youtube.com, bitshoot uh, and dlive.tv. And don't forget ukcolumn.org as well. Lots of material on there to be shared too. I'll just add, Mike, that um, Alex and myself have finished part two of the applied psychological attack on the United Kingdom. Uh, just a little bit of work on the uh, text to go with that, and that will appear on both the website and UK Column YouTube uh, channel. So we've had a, uh, an amazing response to part one, and I hope we do justice with part two. Um, okay, uh, Alex, uh, what's going on with uh, criminal law in the UK and juries in particular? Well, this is the uh, Labour Party calling for juries to be reduced to seven people, as was done in the Second World War for certain indictments, the, the less serious ones. And this was uh, rejected by the government in Parliament yesterday. The coverage is by Joshua Rosenberg, who people might remember as the BBC's legal correspondent for many years, on his blog, A Lawyer Writes. And you can see there the, uh, the usual court sketch mock-up uh, showing how um, the, uh, the courts are now socially distanced and where there are juries, there are perspex scenes, screens between them, which I think fundamentally affects the ability that juries have to form a, a joint view of any evidence and argument that they're hearing. But there it is. Uh, but of course, it's, um, 
it's it's former barristers on the Labour front bench who are pleading for this, those who claim to know about the law and legal history, as covered by Mr Rosenberg. Uh, meanwhile, uh, north of the border, uh, again, with I'm not sure what uh, involvement of juries, uh, we have, I think, as we speak, the hearing coming to a head for Craig Murray, who, as people who've been listening to David Scott's coverage will know, committed uh, unwittingly the, the offence of thou shalt not embarrass the Scottish government. Uh, so do look at his latest blog entry, A Time of Trial, uh, and he says that the uh, Edinburgh court uh, is trying to get him convicted with no courtroom drama and as little said as possible. One of the tricks they have is that you have to dial in and pay national phone rates in order to listen to the proceedings instead of just following a live stream. Mr Murray's being quite uh, understated about it, but he does need donations uh, for his legal fund. And even though I was on the opposite side to him in many things in the past, as a GCHQ officer, I felt at one stage he was a traitor because of what he did uh, when he was ambassador in Uzbekistan. Certainly my colleagues did. And after that, I thought he'd made completely the wrong judgment call on Scottish independence. But I have no hesitation in saying that in both of those, uh, I disagreed with him fundamentally, but he was absolutely right on the tyranny, tyranny that he is identifying, first in his support for Julian Assange, and now latterly in his identification of the stitch-up against Alex Salmond, who uh, found himself on the losing wing of the SNP's internal struggle. So I, I heartily recommend that people make a donation that they can afford to Craig Murray's fund by going to his blog and reading those details. Thank, uh, thank you very much, Alex. Um, well, an extremely uh, serious UK column news today. Have we got some good news? Well, we have because we're able to give you a report on Lynn Thayer, who, of course, has been held um, in a prison in France for the last year um, as a result of trying to help people with uh, cancer. Uh, but the good news is that she is out on bail. We were able to speak to her brother earlier uh, this morning just to get a very short update of what the situation is. So we'd like to play that for you. And uh, then, Alex, I, th I think you've uh, put some of the uh, detail down on one of your slides. But let's listen to that uh, telephone call with Trevor Lynn Thayer's brother. What happened is um, approximately four months ago, Linda was refused her bail application again and we were very concerned because Linda's health has suffered in the nearly two years she's been in Fleury without uh, any charges. When we when we lost the last bail application we decided that we had to dispense with her legal team. She wasn't receiving the correct representation in court. And with the help of Georgia, I believe you know, I contacted her in November and it just went upwards and onwards from there. Uh, she so yeah, give us indeed, give indeed. us the latest news, Tre Trevor. What what is the present situation then? I believe Lynn is out. Is that correct? Okay. Well, the present situation is is that uh, Linda was granted bail yesterday, and so we were. She's out. She would have to appear back in the French court on the twenty second of March. The court case will run for five days. And this is the big court case that affects the other people involved in this investigation. So it will soon be over and done with. Linda, because she has spent so much time on pre-trial detention and the charges she's now facing are not as serious as were first levied at her, the lawyer, Avocar, sorry, seems to believe that the maximum sentence Linda will receive, if any, will be two years. Linda's already served 19 months in prison, plus the five months gratis. 
it's unlikely that Linda will go back to prison now, which is excellent news. We had to accept what we were uh, given yesterday, but really Linda needs to be back in the UK where with her family, with her friends. Okay, so uh, a really excellent uh, result at the moment that Lynn is out. And as you heard there, the, uh, the indication is that she's already served enough time waiting for trial that she shouldn't be spending longer in prison. Uh, unfortunately, um, David Noakes had also applied for bail at the same time, but his uh, application was refused. So we've got to wait for more information on where that uh, puts David Noakes. Uh, but at least Lynn is out and... Uh, able to start uh, unwinding to some extent. Now, we'd like to thank uh, John Smith of Common Law Courts because John has been working in the background to help both Lynn and Lynn Thayer and David Noakes. And John was kind enough to put us in touch with her brother, Trevor, this morning. So thank you very much, John, for everything you're doing. People haven't had a look at the work of the Common Law Courts. Uh, there's the website on screen. And a reminder, if you don't know who um, Lynn and David Noakes are and what they've been doing. You can visit the UK column website and have a look for this article on GC Math and the persecution of David Noakes and Lynn Thayer and Immunobiotech. And uh, Alex, you provided this uh, very nice picture of a smiling, somewhat tired looking, not surprisingly, I believe the French pr prison where Lynn Thayer was being held uh, particularly brutal, but uh, good to see her out. What can what can you tell her tell us, Alex? Well, it's very personal for me and you because, of course, uh, we were literally the shoulders to cry on, as it were, for Lynn at some of the AV events where she fully realised that she was going to be stuck in Fleury Mirouji prison. Well, that was. Uh, likely even then and it turned out to be where she spent the bulk of her time on remand and many people do not make it out there alive and she knew that jolly well i knew it from my previous work uh, looking at the osce um uh, covering you know french prisons as being worse than in the moldova i think was uh, one of the things that was said by uh, an, a special rapporteur for the council of europe so there she is she's made it out alive and even beyond the human uh, victory that this is for her for all of us uh, who've in any way supported her through this and, and prayed that she would make it out alive. The, uh, the other victory is that she, if I'm not mistaken, has the best practical experience and the best conscience uh, of anyone in the world who has attempted to, to manufacture GC math for those, I stress, who come to their own researched conclusion that they wish to use that route to treat cancer. If they wish to make that decision in good conscience, Lynn has the knowledge more than anyone else. So she needs physical support and spiritual support and prayer to keep her alive and, th and thriving. Uh, and we do hope that David follows. But as I put on screen there, the hearing is the 16th, 17th and then 22nd to 24th of March uh, at the Palais de Justice in Paris. And she has to attend, I think, the latter three days after two days of preliminary hearings. Uh, but there we are. David Noakes, of course, was refused bail. But uh, the French never even knew the name David Noakes, let alone Lynn Thayer, except that it were, these names were illegally and unlawfully given to them by the British Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Authority, MHRA, directly tipped off to their French equivalent agency, Ocalesp. Uh, so this is British persecution through the procuration of French agencies. Be under no illusion. Read the article that you just mentioned to see more. And here is Georgia Poulikin. Uh, who appeared at a previous AV event, and Trevor Banks, Lynn's brother that you just heard on the phone, uh, giving a thumbs up for her release on bail. One further item on that, if people want to know 
look at the Freedom of Information request uh, held on the whatdotheyknow.com website, submitted by, I think, another brother of Lynn's called John Banks. This is a succinct summary in several paragraphs of all the unlawful things that the British, not the French, they weren't involved in this at all at the outset, what the British did in order to persecute these two British people. Uh, so the title of that page, uh, which is an FRI, Freedom of Information Release Archive, is GC Math Cancer Treatment, Lynn Thayer, Biochemist, David Noakes, Prosecutions, submitted by John Banks. You'll be quite shocked if, you, if you're new to this as to what has been going on. And uh, one more piece of good news, and this is not at all to detract from the good work of uh, John Smith at the Common Law Court or Scott's Tips or any other common law people who have got involved, but the reality is for the trial phase, Lynn and David do need the best and most honest civil law uh, uh, advocate within the system that they can get. And they now have such a man, a man whom I can vouch for from my uh, indirect dealings with him, Olivier Fauré. His title is Maître, Master of Law. Uh, he's based in Lyon. He's already Georgia Poulikin's lawyer. He has a lot of information and experience on police brutality. There he is last year speaking to some Swiss journalists about the particular problem France has with qualified immunity that you get off scot-free if you're in uniform when you batter people. He's now Lynn's court lawyer, trial lawyer, and he might also become David's. This is, I stress again, not to detract from any previous efforts or any arguments that the common law must be brought in even in France, but it is the reality of the situation. And I think Maître Fauré will do his absolute best for Lynn and if possible for David. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much for that uh, report, Alex. So uh, we can give you some more good news now. Uh, this is an email that came in and uh, I thought this was really delightful. Hi, Brian, Mike, Alex and David. I want to thank you for, highlight, for highlighting the role of the BBC's psychological attack on the children. I thought you might be interested in the role of Newsround found on Children's BBC, CBBC. First became aware of news around about four years ago when Jay, um, that is a child, when Jay was in primary four class at a primary school and before we began to home educate the boys. During a midterm parent teacher meeting, the teacher praised his writing about President Obama. Remember that name, Obama, because we'll come on to that in a minute. His writing about President Obama and said she. Uh, so she said it was good to see that we must regularly watch the news with Jay as some of the children in the class did not watch the news. My husband and I were shocked because uh, as we explained to the teacher, we did not watch the mainstream media news in our home, nor did we expose our children to the mainstream media news. His teacher then proudly explained that Jay and his classmate had to watch BBC News Round every week and then write on the topic of the news clip and proudly, the teacher proudly showed us Jay's writing. She said not nearly all primary schools in Northern Ireland utilise BBC's news round. Needless to say, this did not go down well with us. Uh, this is the second part here. Uh, this year, I have begun to use news round clips as part of home education to enable the boys to focus on and analyse the propaganda techniques that are being used. They then write about the techniques being used, the language being used, any inaccuracies in the reporting and what purpose is served by using a technique. The boys really enjoy doing these lessons and exercises and we think it's an important skill for the boys to have as it enables them to clearly spot propaganda, applied behavioural psychology. Uh, um, thank you essentially Brian, Alex, uh, Mike, Alex and David. Um, so what a wonderful 
email because uh, we can see that information we're putting out is being used and somebody's taking that information and using it to good effect within the family but of course if there are other parents home educating at the moment either uh, permanently or as a result of the curfew then can we in encourage you to maybe adopt the same uh, lesson style okay let's uh, head over to the united states uh, i want to have a look at what's going on with regard to censorship and so on and and really the relationship between us as individuals and and the state and the corporate state and of course we've been making the point over the last number of months about uh, the question of mandatory vaccinations and whether or not any law would be passed in order to make vaccination mandatory and government has said no law will be passed but our point is that uh, we're st starting to see employers uh, demand uh, vaccination we're going to start saying we believe uh, other corporate entities that we do business with for example supermarkets perhaps heading in that direction as well well in the united states uh, it's not just vaccination which is becoming mandatory but speech and freedom of speech uh, is being controlled by employers so here's one example this is the jennifer de chara literary agency they are in new york chicago and los angeles uh, 20 years they've been in business apparently they represent adult fiction non-fiction and children's books since 2001 uh, and they have uh, they have a new uh, employee a new associate literary agency uh, agent sorry so well done to her for getting a job but the question is why do they have a new one well it's because they got rid of an old one so here she is uh, Colleen uh, I'm now posting on Parler she wrote back in November uh, last year it's a great platform with no censorship giving away a few critiques there next week come and find me at Colleen uh, Oofline, however you pronounce that name but anyway that was in November it took her employer a little bit of time to catch up and my understanding is that in fact her employer was tipped off to this tweet encouraging uh, Colleen's friends to head over to Parler uh, because uh, this is what happened uh, just a couple of days ago uh, Je the Jennifer de Chiara literary agency was distressed to discover this morning January the 25th uh, that one of our agents has been using the social media platforms Gab and Parler. Uh, the statement goes on, we do not condone this activity and we apologize to anyone who's been affected or offended by this. Uh, the Jennifer Chiara Literary Agency has in the past and will continue to ensure a voice of unity, equality, and one that's on the side of social justice. Not quite sure how you actually ensure a voice of unity and equality if you're telling people what they can and cannot write on what platforms they can and cannot write on it goes on to say as of this morning Colleen offline is no longer an agent at the Jennifer de Chiara literary agency so uh, Alex uh, this is uh, where we've got uh, where in fact employers are now uh, deciding that you have a corporate ideology which you must meet uh, and if you should be a conservative or in fact if you should belong to some kind of or come from some kind of uh, position which isn't uh, the corporate position well that's it you're kicked out on your backside it may be that some of our foreign viewers uh, even native speakers of English don't know what's meant uh, in Britain and should we say coastal America when you say we do not condone this activity this is um, should we say an arrogant way of senior people or people in positions of authority saying we don't like our underlings being involved in violence and nastiness whenever this phrase is used in the past it's always been about violence the first time I heard it at primary school the headmaster was saying I do not condone bullying 
right? That's that's how the phrase is used. So the the violence here that's not being condoned, you know, i.e., criticised, is writing on a social media account. Right? Gab and Parler equal violence in the minds of these far out New Yorkers. But of course, that's the diet that they're fed every morning, isn't it? Or every day on their newsfeed. Gab and Parler are violence. You see this creeping into the mainstream Washington, New York, LA press now. Gab and, to, to be on Gab and Parler is to be a terrorist. So obviously this is going to spread to Britain and elsewhere soon. Um, well, this is a very good point. And we come, we'll be coming back to that in just a moment when we uh, look at what's been going on with, uh, with Biden. Uh, so uh, keep that one in mind for a little bit later in the programme. OK, well, on to the uh, BBC and education. Just a reminder here that uh, we've been talking about the BBC putting its so-called um, learning material into children's minds during lockdown and boasting at uh, their prowess in doing that. Um, so this is uh, just one of the many things on the BBC's webpage. But in starting to look through it, I came across this lady, Lindsay Brown, um, broadcast journalist at BBC Newsbeat. So, of course, New BBC Newsbeat is another uh, section of the BBC targeted at uh, children's uh, minds, young people's minds. And this is where I was fascinated to see, followed by Barack Obama. Um, so I didn't know whether possibly if the... Uh, the child in Northern Ireland is picking up on a bomb because Obama seems to have some special arrangement with the BBC itself. Um, I don't know if anybody can explain why this should be happening. I'd be very interested to know. But if you go through a Twitter page, and I, I like doing this because you start to build up a little profile of the person. And of course, what does she do? First of all, she advertises herself. Um, so it's me, 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 me. Um, and uh, here she was very excited at the first time presenting uh, BBC Newsbeat. Uh, but what else did I find on the feed? Well, I found this. Sir David Attenborough and Prince William want us to come up with some green ideas to save the planet. So I've been speaking to some already have. So this is interesting, Mike, that Sir David Attenborough and Prince William want want us, want the BBC to come up with stuff for them. Good. So the BBC jumps to, it starts to advertise what uh, Sir David Attenborough and Prince William are up to, and um, it's ideas to help the environment, but it gets deeper because it's this. Uh, so she says, do you run a green environmental business? Think you can impress David Attenborough with your idea. We're looking for young green entrepreneurs to speak to at BBC Newsbeat, direct messages open. And then if you have a look at the picture there with the BBC already giving free advertising to this, it says Prince William and Sir David Attenborough join forces on Earthshot. So um, we've heard of Moonshot, which is the mass testing, but uh, now we're on Earthshot. And I was fascinated to see what this was really about because of course the BBC is backing it. There's no debate about whether it's a good thing. The BBC is backing it and obviously pushing it at children. Uh, so here's the Earthshot. Uh, the Earthshot Prize collaborates with Countersin. I didn't get through to Countersin, but what is, what is this about? Well, to help repair our planet over the next 10 years. Do you think that's a reasonable goal, Mike? A few problems in a few the planet. Problems, yes. A few people who can't feed themselves or haven't got heating or... I uh, haven't got eyesight, um, so um, Willie and uh, 
and uh, Sir Attenborough are going to do something about that. So his moonshots inspiring earth shots, uh, taking inspiration from President John F. Kennedy's moonshot, which united millions of people around organizing a goal to put man on the moon and catalyzed the development of new technology in the 1960s. The Earthshot Prize is centered around five Earthshots, simple but ambitious goals for our planet, which if achieved by 2030, will improve life for us all for generations to come. So let's see what they're gonna achieve by 2030. They're gonna clean the air, uh, they're gonna revive the oceans, they're gonna fix the climate, they're gonna build a waste-free world and they're going to protect and restore nature. And they're going to do that by... Uh, well, the one, if I may, sorry to interject there, the one thing that was missing was there was nothing really about human beings. This is all about the planet. Uh, the human beings don't really seem to get a look in. So this is the sort of team that you're dealing with. So there's the smiling face of Prince Willie, and we've got Sir David Attenborough. And then what have we got? Well, we've got a mixture. Well, we've got royalty, obviously, but we've got Chinese billionaires. Jack Ma, very interesting man at the moment because he's under pressure from the Chinese government. And that's a story covered on 21st Century Wire. Uh, we've got pop star. Uh, we've got pop stars as well. But essentially, these people are internationalists. So we can ask whether they've got our best interests at heart. And these are the sorts of partners Global Alliance Partners, UN Environment Programme, the World Wildlife Fund, and our old friend down at the bottom, Mr Schwab, and the World Economic Forum. So they've just stomped up with uh, Prince William in order to save the planet by 2030. These are the, fun the founding partners, uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies, uh, Expo 2020, Paul G. Allen Family Foundation. We haven't gone through those yet. And but, the Jack Ma Foundation. On the and right also hand. Jack Ma, uh, hence my interest in uh, Patrick Henningsen's uh, uh, coverage of uh, Jack Ma and his recent disappearance and reappearance. People might like to go to 21st Century Wire site to see that. Uh, well, here's Prince William. He says the world is at a tipping point. Earthshot is our effort to ensure we hand the planet on to our children and grandchildren in a better state than we found it. And they've coughed up 50 million to do that, which they're going to give us five one million pound prizes every year if you can come up with an interesting idea to save the planet. That's very generous. Not as generous as the Bank of England, perhaps. <laughs> no. So uh, Sir David Attenborough and I will be joined on the Earthshot Prize Council by celebrities from the world of entertainment, sport, business, charity and the environment. What is this? What is this? Uh, it's not adult. This is something else. I think the dotty person now would be the person who doesn't believe in climate change. I aim to take up the environmental baton from my father, Prince Charles. Well, many would say that Charles is dotty. I'm one of the people that would say that. But uh, this is going straight through into the minds of the children through the BBC. And I think uh, it's beholden on every one of us to make sure that the BBC is called out for this blatant propaganda. Uh, and of course, the BBC being used to uh, fill a gap in children's education at the moment, as we've highlighted on this programme. And why? Well, because all the schools are closed and they're having to do things remotely. Uh, well, Gavin Williamson was talking about this at a, on a speech yesterday. The COVID pandemic, he said, has changed our way of life. We do business differently. We shop differently. And of course, we learn and teach differently. Well, the question is, 
is anybody learning through remote learning? Uh, I don't think so. But anyway, he goes on to say, unprecedented problems require unprecedented solutions and schools, teachers and leaders have all pulled together to bring about one of the biggest shifts the education sector has ever seen. Uh, because we've become so used to looking at the negative effects of pandemic, we've lost sight of one of the more positive aspects and how it's changed learning for the better. Has it? Has it, Gavin? Has it really? I don't think so, uh, because I don't know a single school child that is appreciating what is happening to them at the moment. And none of my children's friends are appreciating what's happening to them at the moment. Uh, even the mainstream press is reporting this. This is a male depression among the youngsters at, at frightening levels and keeping schools shut risks having calamitous impact on children's mental health, pediatricians warn. Uh, so that's that. Then there's the whole question of exams. <clears throat> what is going to happen this year with, re with respect to exams? There's different stories every week. One day they're not doing exams. Next day there's going to be some kind of exams. Are there going to be national exams? Uh, apparently not. According to this uh, latest advice from Ofqual on the government website, uh, it's going to be teacher assessments. Of course, that's unfair for, for better schools. Uh, the children do worse than the, the less well schools if, if uh, you know, because there's no national uh, standard for the thing. Uh, and then, of course, we've got Ofsted's latest report uh, called Remote Education Research. Uh, and that's showing uh, that uh, nearly half of parents who responded said that keeping their child focused on studying was a top concern, along with motivation and having enough contact with teachers. So children absolutely not enjoying this remote learning experience that they're being pushed through at the moment. It is affecting their educations. Uh, and as we mentioned, said, uh, and Patrick has uh, mentioned several times, even if the schools go back to normal at some point this year, it'll be 12 years before the effects of this disastrous policy over the last 12 months um, have run through and, and the next generation actually gets uh, any kind of uh, education. Um, and uh, so that's where we are. But don't worry, because Gavin says it's all good. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, let's just uh, briefly uh, cover this. Um, this is the BBC this morning. Biden raises election meddling with Putin in first phone call. Uh, apparently, uh, Biden has uh, given Putin a ticking off for messing around in uh, the US elections. Uh, and the Russians don't seem to acknowledge that. That's not quite what they said with their uh, briefing about the telephone call. But anyway, this is what the BBC is pushing. Uh, and clearly, Russiagate is not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, the Mail then uh, had this a couple of days ago. Uh, explosive new book claims KGB began grooming young and vain Donald Trump 40 years ago by saving him from financial ruin and turning him into a Russian asset who gave Putin everything he wanted as president. Uh, and this is uh, a book uh, written by Craig Unger, who has basically built a, camp, uh, a career on this narrative now over the last number of years. Um, but Russiagate is not going away. Um, and again, as, as Alex was mentioning when we were doing the censorship section, this was from The Guardian yesterday. Facebook is bombarding right-wing users with ads for combat gear. See for yourself. Uh, and the fact check article here is uh, from Igor Vamas is uh, showing advertisements that are being given to uh, uh, Facebook users from on the conservative side for for ammunition, for combat gear and so on. And they're saying basically making the claim here that the right wing is being uh, uh, what's groomed the, is the word. Groomed, I think. Uh, Yes, uh, and Alex, this is this is pretty much the point you were making earlier on in the program. Uh, 
they, there is a narrative being built that Trump represents terrorism, that Trump supporters represent terrorism. Uh, we've now got the position that the impeachment isn't going to go ahead because the Republicans in the Senate aren't going to support it on the basis that you can't impeach somebody who's already out of office. Um, they were hoping to push through this impeachment process in order to make sure to guarantee that he couldn't run again in four years time. That hasn't worked. They're aiming to uh, continue pushing this narrative of Russian interference in elections mixed up with uh, the radicalization of the Trump support base. Uh, and turning them into terrorists uh, in order to justify uh, ruling him out from running again in the future. Agree with all that, Mike. Uh, if people wish to listen to this for an hour and it's well worth it, they should go to an overnight upload by the Dark Journalist on YouTube and I think elsewhere, interviewing Joseph Farrell on this. And he talks about the Trump faction being the minority in the deep state or the faction that backed Trump. And they believed, a bit like some of the British deep state factions, that the Anglo-Americans should still rule the world. But they found themselves outgunned and outmaneuvered by a bigger rump of the deep state in Britain and America that thought that globalism meant ultimately that our nation states would go under. That's the broader framework here. And as Farrell brings out in his interview with the dark journalist, this means that Trump is more than just a personality now. The reason why he's still being got at is because he represents the idea that a future person with a bit more fine tuning in the, in the mold of Trump could perhaps regain the executive for the American people and their sovereignty. And that explains all the, the maneuvers around who has their finger on the nuclear button and so on. Uh, and it also, I think, throws up the uh, bigger question of uh, everything that's raised by Christopher Story in the, in the series that Brian mentioned at the outset, which people should go to, uh, because we are onto the state section of Christopher Story's table from his, uh, his book, where he says uh, that, the, uh, that the point of social decay was to divide and rule. So we're seeing increasingly that large parts of the Trump movement were commandeered at an early stage by, shall we say, the lesser of two evils within the deep state, the kind of deep state that thought, well, we want to rule uh, unlawfully, but we at least want Britain and America to exist as nations and not become part of a world state. Uh, that's the, the broader framework. And if you want to keep that going, you need to be able to control and deliberately ratchet up the tensions between patriotic and, and internationally minded people. I think that's the, the whole the spectrum of what's going on there. One further element that Christopher Story brought into the mix here, which I think Mr. Unger's referring to and deliberately twisting, is that from the break of the breakup of the Soviet Union onwards, a politicized globalist uh, arm of the KGB and mafia, uh, usually called the mafia, spelt with an I Y A at the end, mafia, uh, was brought into the mix in the West in order to advance the cause of globalism. And because these things are so dark who's doing what, who's threatening whom, and what the real identities are. This is the way in which the Clintons of this world can point the finger at Russia, or particularly at Mr. Putin, and say, you are destabilizing us, whereas in fact, it's a Russian mafia-based or KGB-originated globalist crime syndicate. Okay, Alex, thank you very much for a um, really excellent uh, segment to today's news. And uh, a lot of feelings go out to people in Holland. I had the pleasure of living there for two years. I know the country. And what a shame that uh, a lovely country like Holland should be reduced to that. Uh, we just end on the note that uh, one of the biggest compliments that uh, viewers and listeners are given the UK column is that you keep us sane. Thank you for that. If we keep you sane, your job is to be out there keeping other people sane. Uh, because it's keeping the calm and the analysis uh, that is going to finally deal with this uh, propaganda and 
madness coming from central government. We'll end there. Thanks for joining you, for joining us. We'll be for back joining in, us. We'll be back. In, well, we'll be back in 10 minutes if you're on the <laughs> on the UK column members live stream for extra. And then we'll be back on Friday as usual. Back on Friday. Thank you. Bye-bye.